Thanks for that. That's what happens when you walk in front of a speaker. Right. Um, Going to break with our tradition ever so slightly. Um, I want to get into the text right away. And so I'm going to invite Nick to come up and read for us from Matthew chapter 10. And Nick, you've got the, uh, the Pew Bible there. I wonder if you can tell everybody what page that is. Good morning. Uh, it's page 975 in the Church Bibles. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Thanks very much, Nick. Apologies for the text there. That was a input error on the uh, on my part. So apologies there. I think it's worth acknowledging in general that if we were in the habit of cherry picking verses from the Bible, there are sections we would likely avoid. For many, this morning's passage is one of them. For some, the passage is uncomfortable. For others, deeply painful. Some of you might find it downright offensive. And there are many, unfortunately, corners of Christianity that have made much of passages like this and used them to justify, frankly, unbiblical behavior. The practice of shunning, essentially ghosting people who leave a particular branch of the church, is still practiced today in many parts of the world. If that's been your experience, I want to say I'm sorry and that I hope you'll hear me out. Others may be listening this morning perhaps just a bit more painfully aware of loved ones who aren't yet following Jesus. I want you to know that I'm with you too. We're going to explore this passage because we believe that the whole Bible was given to us by God and it's for us to study, explore, sometimes struggle with in order to get to know him better. And this occasionally means wrestling with difficult texts. We can't gloss over them because they're difficult. Actually, I think there's much we can learn. I've wrestled with the words here over this past week, and I can't say that I think I have all the answers. 
But I hope you'll come along as I do my best to unpack what I believe Jesus is saying to us today from this passage. So the first part of the passage begins with an incredibly bold statement from Jesus. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. How does this first hit you? Is it a shock or perhaps something you've heard so many times it glazes over you entirely? Maybe you're asking some nervous questions in your head. Have I acknowledged Jesus sufficiently? For that matter, what does Jesus mean by acknowledge? If that's you, know that you're in good company because those were the questions I was asking over the past week. The word Matthew uses for acknowledge here could also be translated as confesses. It's a statement of solidarity. It's an action where you publicly tie yourself to someone. And there's all sorts of examples we might use here. For those of you who have gotten married, there was a public affirmation of your love and commitment for your spouse. And you walked out as part of a married couple different than you were when you walked in that morning. For those of you who have adopted children, again, there is a formal and legal moment where you promise not simply to feed and look after a child, but to take them literally into your family, an all-encompassing commitment to them. I had my own little moment of acknowledgement this past week. After 10 and a half years living in the UK this past week, I became a British citizen. So... For those of you who haven't been through the process, I'll spare you all the stories of visa applications, and we'll go straight to the ceremony. Uh, you walk into a little room in the council office, and there's a union flag hanging up uh, right next to a saltire, uh, next to a little picture of King Charles, and they bring in some dignitaries, in my case, the Lord Lieutenant and the Deputy Provost, and in front of them and others, you stand up and make a promise. In this case, I made an affirmation of allegiance, and I said this, I state your name, do solemnly, sincerely, and truly declare and affirm that on becoming a British citizen, I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to His Majesty King Charles III, his heirs and successors according to law. And then I made a pledge, I will give my loyalty to the United Kingdom and respect its rights and freedoms. I will uphold its democratic values. I will observe its laws and faithfully fulfill my duties and obligations as a British citizen. Now, these are important words. They're, they're a heavy commitment. They're a difficult commitment uh, from somebody who's far away. But nevertheless, when I walked out, I had a different standing with the nation than I did when I walked in. They're not commitments to be entered into lightning. They're turning points where you can see your life before and your life after. And that's what I think Jesus is getting at here. In Jesus' day, it was a fairly common occurrence to proclaim someone, usually the emperor of the day, as Lord. What this meant was that you were declaring them to be the supreme figure in charge of your life and the world around you. It's not just a pledge of allegiance like I made to the king this week. It's a bigger, more encompassing recognition of Caesar's superiority and inherently our inferiority. And this is why the early church had so much trouble fitting into the Roman world in its earliest days. Now, it's worth noting that the Romans weren't 
anti-religion per se. They just absorbed all the foreign religions into their big cupboard of deities, one which included the emperor himself. He's one of the deities on the shelf. The struggle for Christians was that making a pledge to the emperor, or indeed worshiping him, as they were occasionally asked to do, was a no-go. Jesus being Lord is a zero-sum game. I think this is also one of those moments where Jesus was pulling back the curtain a bit and revealing something of what the future would hold for his followers. That there would likely come a day where they would be made to either acknowledge or deny him publicly. Something we saw time and time again during the history of the persecuted church. But this message isn't just about the church under the Roman emperor. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Rome, he said these words. Uh, the reference is wrong. This is Romans. Uh, <laughs> I'm still learning the slide program, as you can all see. Uh, the actual passage here is Romans 10.9. If you declare with your mouth, and the actual word for declare here, incidentally, is the same one for acknowledge that Matthew uses. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saying Jesus is Lord became one of the most important statements in early Christianity. These words may not seem particularly controversial to us today, but for the early church, it was a bold, perhaps anarchical, an anarchy statement. In affirming Jesus is Lord, the Christians were effectively knocking the emperor off his perch as the final and ultimate authority in their lives. So Jesus is pretty clear here. If we acknowledge him, we will have to acknowledge, he will acknowledge us before God. But we do also have to rest, wrestle with the other side of the coin here, namely that not everyone acknowledges Jesus as Lord. And he says here that if we don't acknowledge him, he won't acknowledge us before God. I suspect that if we simply read this at face value, it seems incredibly harsh. Some of you might even be wondering, if I didn't own up to my faith at one time at work or at school, does this mean that Jesus won't acknowledge me anymore? Sit tight, we'll come back to that. What Jesus is ultimately saying here, I think, is that he is the only one who can stand before his Father and enable a relationship for humans like us to come back to him. Jesus is establishing his position as our advocate, as our representative to his Father. Acknowledging Jesus is a crucial first step in a long journey. Jesus' question to Peter uh, later on, he says, who do you say I am? It's also a question that we have to answer. Is Jesus a nice guy? A Jewish tradesman living in Palestine who taught people how to get along with one another? While this may be the popular image of Jesus, it doesn't really hold up to what Jesus actually says, according to his biographers, the guys who wrote the Gospels. Let's look at the next verses. If you thought the first verses were tough, verse 34 is a bit of a shocker for those who envision Jesus as the ultimate meek and mild surfer hippie dude. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What's going on here? On the surface, this seems like a pretty unsettling statement from Jesus. 
I think we need to consider two things here. First, what does he mean by peace? And second, what's this business about a sword? So first then, peace. We've just come out of the Christmas season. And we've sung songs with lyrics like, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And then we turn to the news to find that some 2,000 years later, there's still turmoil. There's turmoil just miles away from the place where Jesus actually said these words. Iran and Pakistan are escalating conflicts with one another. The US and UK have sent ships to patrol the Red Sea and attack Houthi rebels in Yemen. What is this promised peace? It certainly doesn't feel peaceful when I listen to the news. Furthermore, I think for most of us, our own inner lives wouldn't best be described as peaceful, not first and foremost. We're all wrestling with our own anxieties, our own fears, our own health, the health of loved ones, and so on. The commentator R.T. France has a helpful line. He writes this, the peace, the Messiah, that is Jesus brings is much more than the absence of fighting, which men dignify with the name of peace. It is a restored relationship with God. And I think this makes a lot of sense. True peace, the shalom that the Old Testament talks about, is bigger than just an absence of conflict. So if peace, with the peace that Jesus is talking about isn't just an absence of conflict, what does he mean? I think it makes more sense to consider this sword language he uses. When he's talking about a sword, is he meaning a literal saber with which we can slice our enemies in half, uh, Phantom Menace or Monty Python references, uh, whichever fits your boat? Is this a call to bear arms? Is this NRA Jesus in his own day? This certainly would have been the Jewish expectation of the Messiah that he would turn up and lead his people to fight against the oppressors, that his primary mission would be to drive out these Roman colonizers and usher in a new version of the kingdom of Israel. That's not where Jesus is headed at all. I think we need to consider this language about peace and swords in light of the verses that follow. Look up here. Look where Jesus takes this conversation right after. He says, I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's Jesus talking about here? Divisions. As if a sword cut our family tree in half. Painful, fractious divisions. They are the deep, and profound cost of acknowledging Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And I, I, suppose, I suspect that many people in this room who are followers of Jesus can think of a time in their lives where their commitment to identifying with Jesus led to friction in their lives, alienation from coworkers, ridicule from people at school, the end of a relationship, being at odds with family over the dinner table. Some of us may even have seen physical, mental, or spiritual persecution as a result of following Jesus. And we don't have to go very far to read of the suffering of our brothers and sisters in the wider world. Over the past week, listening about news in Yemen on my morning drives in, I thought I'd see what Open Doors had to say about what life is like 
for the church in that country, which has over 30 million people. Here's what Open Doors says about Yemen. Following Jesus in Yemen continues to be extremely dangerous. As conversion from Islam is forbidden by Islamic and state law, Christians must keep their faith secret or risk severe repercussions from their families, the authorities, or radical Islamic groups. This can include forced divorce, loss of custody of children, arrest, interrogation, even honor killings. That's what Jesus was talking about. There's a quote from a Yemeni pastor. He's called Salah in this article. It's not his real name. After giving his life to Christ, Salah spent his afternoons meeting people outside of mosques and trying to share his faith with the men as they left prayer meetings. And this led, obviously, to significant persecution from him, for him. And when he asked why he continued sharing his faith, he said this, if we sit at home and do nothing, we would be safe. But what kind of Christians would we be if we weren't risking our life for others to know life? Now, for most of us, the threat of physical torture and death probably won't be a reality for us. But nevertheless, Jesus warned his earliest followers that there would be a deep personal cost in following him. It's a wholehearted commitment to putting him above everything else we might cherish, particularly those things which we might be particularly tempted to try and hold on to for ourselves. And I think it's worth noting as a brief aside that Jesus himself experienced this. If you flip over to Mark chapter 3, or just look on the screen, um, there he is, it says that Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Jesus felt firsthand what it was like to be rejected by his own family. And when he speaks to his disciples about the divisions that come from following him, he's actually speaking from his own experience. So far, this is fairly heavy. Jesus hasn't minced his words to commit to being a disciple of Jesus, to acknowledge him as Lord, is the only way to a relationship with God, but it comes at a cost. It can and likely will divide us from some people that we care about, but notice how Jesus finishes the section. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Now what's going on here? Is this mere hospitality, the idea of providing for someone who probably doesn't have many resources? I think that's part of it. Uh, it fits within the typical Near Eastern customs of hospitality, but I think it's more than that. It seems to me that Jesus is in some way illustrating the new family identity that comes from following him. There is an expectation to care for Jesus' followers as if they were caring for Jesus himself. 
If you've read other parts of the New Testament, particularly the letters, they spell out this sort of family identity in all sorts of ways. The traveling preachers, evangelists, and missionaries are often met by Christians in particular regions only to be fed, watered, taken in, given supplies to further them in their task and in their onward journey. And I expect that in a rather international church, this is something that many of us can speak of firsthand. I can certainly relate. Ten and a half years ago, I turned up in Scotland with two suitcases and a backpack, and that was what I had. I didn't really know anyone. I popped into a church the following Sunday, and by the end of the service, I'd made several new friends. Friends who over the course of the next years would bring me into their homes and into their lives, and some of them are in this room today. We may, in choosing to acknowledge Jesus, lose relationships, sometimes really close relationships, maybe even family ones. But these last verses show us that if we no longer have a natural family to surround us, we can have and find an adoptive family in and among God's people. And it's worth asking ourselves, are we modeling this sort of community that Jesus describes here? Can we do more as individuals, as families, as a gathered church to provide for one another in this way? Some words for some anxious Jesus followers. I wonder if some of you have been slightly anxious since we first read the first verse in this section where Jesus has some strong words for those who don't acknowledge him, for those who deny him. I wonder if someone out there might be racked with guilt over a point where you could have identified yourself as a follower of Jesus and instead you hid in the backdrop. Are there some potential pangs of guilt there? Maybe a point in the office where you could have stood up for your faith or for a Christian and you just shrunk back. Or, um, yeah, just a point where you feel like, oh, I missed the mark there. What does this mean? I want us to take a little case study in following Jesus, also from the pages of the New Testament, looking at Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples. Peter was the first person to acknowledge who Jesus was, the Savior, the Son of the living God. Peter stood at Jesus' side throughout his earthly ministry, and after Jesus was betrayed to the authorities, his group of followers scattered, and we find Peter lingering outside the place where Jesus was being interrogated and tortured. Several people asked Peter whether he was part of Jesus' group of followers. At one point, he even denied being part of the group, fearful for his own life. At one point, he even goes so far as to deny knowing Jesus. This is something that Jesus himself had predicted he would do. Well, in case you don't know the story, Jesus is executed by the Roman occupying military, and we don't see much of Peter for the next few days. It's only when Jesus, having been raised from the dead, begins to appear to his followers that we once again find Peter. And if you want to read this story in more depth, uh, turn over to the book of John and read chapter 21. Jesus meets Peter on the beach. He turns to him and asks a simple question. Do you love me? He asks it three times, once for each of the times Peter's denied him. And each time Peter replies, yes. Jesus then just gives him two instructions. Feed my lambs and follow me. Interestingly enough, this is essentially the same instruction he gave to the disciples in our passage this morning. 
Rather than agonizing over missed opportunities, like Peter, if we have moments where we spectacularly miss the mark, it doesn't mean we're doomed for all eternity. You can read through the book of Acts to see just how much God uses Peter and just how much he steps up to serve God's people. Acknowledging Jesus doesn't mean that we're perfect 15 minutes later. It doesn't mean that he has reached, what it means is that he's reached out to us exactly as we are to transform us more into his likeness. In recognition of this, we honor him by doing our best to align ourselves to the principles of his rule and reign. But in the first place, we're not standing in God's presence on the basis of our own merit. We stand there at the invitation of the king. So, some words for the rest. Have you acknowledged Jesus? If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I wonder whether I've challenged your view of him. Years ago now, there was a tagline through a sermon series here that said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We can't find peace with God through good behavior. We can't find peace with God through coming to church. We can't find peace with God through anything we do on our own. It starts with a very simple step. Are you willing to trust that Jesus is who he says he is? We can't say that he's simply a moral teacher. That doesn't hold up when we read what he has to say. Jesus was very clear we need to acknowledge him as our Lord, as our Savior. Because we couldn't do it on our own, he came to make a way for us back to his Father. Let's pray. Gracious God, these are hard truths. May we be reminded of your great love for us, displayed ultimately in your son Jesus, who is not afraid to take up his cross on our behalf. I pray that you would bring comfort to those who long to see loved ones acknowledge Jesus as Lord. I also pray that through the Holy Spirit you would awaken our loved ones to their need for a Savior. And finally, I pray that if anyone here is wrestling with these issues, that they would reach out and talk with someone. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, in the talk, I talked about a line from Jesus where he asks, who do you say I am? The song that we're going to sing looks at this point from the opposite direction. If we've acknowledged Jesus as our Savior, who does God say we are? If you're following Jesus, sing out and hold fast to these truths. And if you're not following Jesus right now, it's an opportunity to listen and think about the meaning of these lyrics. Let's, let's stand and sing. <laughs>